Well, let's go ahead and turn our Bibles, please, to Colossians chapter 3. If you're making notes this morning, which I'd encourage you to do, um, this one is called The Wardrobe of the Saints. We are presently in a series looking at Paul's letter to the Colossians. In chapters 1 and 2, Paul has done an incredible job of touring us around the supremacy of Christ, hasn't he? We've seen how Jesus is supreme in personhood. He's supreme in in, uh, the creation. But from him and through him and to him are all things. He's supreme in the church, head over all things. And he's also supreme in our reconciliation. And then in chapters 3 and 4, he pivots and he changes tack. As he now wants to help us see what does it look like then to have Jesus as supreme in our lives. If he really is King of kings and Lord of lords, then what does it mean to walk in a manner that would reveal that he really is our King? That he is the supreme one that we are living for. And just last week then we saw how as Christians... We are to give ourselves to become in daily experience what we have already been declared to be in Christ. He's called us to be holy and blameless and above reproach. That's the declaration he has over our lives. But now he wants to help us see, listen, in light of that reality, in light of that standing before God, live in a manner worthy of that. Play this out in your life. And he continues with that exact same theme. Here in verses 12 and 13 and 14, which is what we're going to be looking at today. But to help give us some context, we're going to start reading in verse 5. This is the word of the Lord. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked, when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which has been renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, Barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let's pray. Lord, we, without doubt, have an incredibly holy calling on our lives. And it's to live in a manner worthy of the calling that we've received. Lord, did you help us to have eyes to see this morning what that looks like? And more importantly, would you help us to have a heart that desires to put this on. Lord, we do love you. And Lord, do you forgive us for times where we get distracted? And would you help us to focus our gaze afresh this morning on you? On you and your glory? On you and your royalty? 
on you and your splendor. And would we long to be like you? In Jesus' name, amen. You know, a number of years ago now, we went back to the United Kingdom to visit family. And it was more of a tourist trip in some ways when we lived in the UK. It's funny, you grow up there, you don't do a lot of the touristy things because you just sort of, this is my country. But then you go back for a visit and suddenly you're like, I really want to visit these things. So we went to Windsor Castle. And Windsor Castle, to be around Windsor Castle was an amazing experience. You know, for a thousand years, a reigning monarch has lived in Windsor Castle. That's a long time. You know, so when you go around this place, you just see a place steeped with history. It's a big castle. It's a big house as well. There's a church in there. The grounds are massive, all surrounded by great walls. And to be there was indeed an incredible experience. We went in a whole array of rooms. There are hundreds of them. We went into one and it was called the Long Room. It was a long room. I mean, the way it was structured, it was just a very long, quite thin room. And in the middle of the room was a massive mahogany table. And this thing went on for meters and meters and meters with ornate chairs all in the side. And this is the room where the queen has her banquets, where the heads of states and kings and queens and presidents and people all across the world come together and they get to dine with the queen at this incredible table. And you look up, you look up a really high ceiling like this, and on the ceiling are all different shields of the knights of the past. It's a really incredible experience. When in another room there's an armory room, it is what it says on the tin. It's just full of armory, but not guns. It's full of swords and shields and knights and all the stuff they'd wear in medieval times, all polished up and pristine because they would have been the clothing of the king at different times. Went in another room that was called the gold room, and it was just that. It was just filled with gold. It sort of took your breath away as you just thought, how much is just this room worth by itself? But it was just so opulent. And in all the different rooms we went in, in every room, there were paintings. And within the paintings, there were always paintings of the kings and queens and princes and princesses of the past. Some were big, some were small. But in all the different rooms, you always found paintings of history of the kings and queens and the monarchs and royalty of the past. And one of the things I saw as I engaged with these paintings, I'm not much of an arty person myself, but as I engaged with these paintings... One of the things that became clear is without doubt, royalty has a very specific way of dressing. On none of the shots did we see royalty in shorts, t-shirt and thongs. That was not clearly an option for royalty. Whenever you see royalty, even on the television today, you don't just see them sort of hanging out, do you slob it out, I like your shorts. That's not what they're doing. Because royalty have a way of wearing things. They wear clothes of nobility and stature and respectability. Clothes that are befitting of their position. They are the monarchs of the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth. And so they dress accordingly, accordingly to their position of royalty. And in headline, that is exactly what Paul is trying to talk to us about here in in Colossians 3 verses 12 through 14. Because what he wants to help us see here is that as royalty now ourselves, we too now have new clothes to wear. So he's already helped us see early on in this letter that we are indeed new creations in Christ. The old has gone and the new has come. 
You and I have been united with Jesus Christ in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. As such, we are heirs with Christ. Who is Christ? He's the king. We are heirs with Christ. We are royalty. And as such, Paul wants to stop us and hold us by the hand and say, listen, now as royalty, you've got some new clothes to wear. Those old clothes that we talked about last week, they've got to go. They're the old ways. But now you've got new clothes. There's a new wardrobe that you're to attend to. New things that you're to put on in Christ in, in accordance with the position that you now have in Christ as royalty. Three points then this morning. Number one, our new identity. Number two, our new clothes. And then finally, number three, our new crown. Number one, then our new identity. You know, just last week, We saw in verses 5 through 11 that we are indeed still sinners. And we saw through verses 5 to 11 that we are indeed to put off the old self and put to death the evil and sinful ways of our old ways, didn't we? That was what the whole message was about. We need to mortify our sin. We need to go after it with violence, with aggression, with intentionality. For our old ways are what Jesus died for. They're no longer becoming of who we are in Christ, and so they've got to go. But Paul knows that's actually really hard. <laughs> it's hard to do that, isn't it? You know, I'm aware for, for many of you, you'll have gone to gospel community this week and you'll have started talking about it. And when we start talking about it, you can feel a whole lot of things. But one of the things you can feel is, man, this is hard. It's hard to talk about these things. It's hard to see these things. It's hard to put, put them to death. Like, what does that really mean? It's awkward. Paul knows that. That's why in Romans chapter 7, verses 21 to 24, he says this about himself. He says, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am! For who will deliver me from this body of death? My friends, I'm sure we can all relate to that to some degree, don't you think? There is a war going on. I want to do right. I want to put off the old self. Let's do this. Oh, why do I still find it so attractive? Why do I keep doing it? I want to put on the new self. I do, but it's so hard because this stuff still... There's a war going on in our lives and there will be until you die and Jesus Christ raises you in a glorified body. There will always be a war going on between the new self and the old self, which is your flesh. Paul knows that. He knows it is hard. He knows at times we'll be overwhelmed. He knows at times we'll be condemned. He knows there's going to be churches like ours that will bring this up in a gospel community and will say, Sue, what are you seeking to put to death? What's your thing? And he knows when we start doing that, it will be easy to be overwhelmed. There'll be times where we feel condemned. How can I change? There's so many things I need to change it. And so right up front, Paul wants to take us by the hand and remind us of who we are in Christ. Who you and I really are. Before we talk about putting on, in light of the hardness of putting off, let me remind you of who you are. Look at verse 12, the start of it. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. 
What a comforting and soothing description this is of who we really are, don't you think? He could have just said, okay, put it off then and put on, boom, 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 boom. No. Put on then as. He wants to remind us before anything else, knowing how hard this process can be. Listen, this is who you are. This is how you got here. And this is your identity. So first of all, then he says, listen, you are chosen. Sovereign Grace, just let that sink in a moment. We studied the supremacy of Christ in his personhood, in creation, in the church, in reconciliation, and now we discover, and he chose you by name, specifically you. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 4, this is the way Paul says it. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. What was God doing before there was even time? What was he doing before he even put the foundation of the world in place? He was discussing you. And he was choosing you. But didn't I choose Christ? Didn't I at the right time put my faith in him as my Lord and Savior? Didn't I choose him? Of course you did. If you hadn't chosen him, you wouldn't be saved. You have to put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's how one gets saved. But how did you come to choose him? How did you come to pray? How did you come to desire to even to do that? Well, the reason is because before the foundation of the earth, he chose you. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. Blind. You never, ever, ever would have chosen him. You were dead. It's like going into a cemetery and saying, okay, anybody want to come out to play? It's a waste of time. But if God raises that person from the dead and you say, anybody want to come out to play? Oh, I do. Yeah, let's go. That's what happened to you. You chose him. But it's only possible because he chose you first. Isn't that incredible? Knowing exactly who you are, knowing every sin that you would commit, knowing how you would fail many times, he still said, yeah, but I'm going to choose you. I want you. He then continues, you have also been, you are holy, or you have been declared to be holy. Paul has already told us this back in chapter 1, but now as he starts to address our sin and help us see its presence and that it needs to be removed, he knows our temptation is going to be towards legalism in this moment and condemnation in this moment because we'll forget who we are. So he wants to help us see, again, listen, just to be clear, you are holy. You have been declared to be holy before the Lord. Yes, you are working hard to become what he's declared you to be, but let's be very clear what he's declared you to be. He's declared you to be holy. Holy and blameless and above reproach. It's staggering. Galatians chapter 4 verse 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. Isn't that amazing? chosen before the foundation of the earth. And when the fullness of time had come, God sent 
forth his son. When you were dead in your transgressions and sin, when you were carrying on in the alienated and hostile in mind and doing evil deeds, when you freely followed the prince of the power of the air, God sent forth his son who died in your place so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be redeemed, so that you could be declared that heaven would be your home, so that you could be adopted into his very family, and so that you could be declared before him holy. It's what the great exchange is all about. On the cross, he became sin for us. What did we become? Holy. Wow. He's clothed me in the holiness of his son. So now as he sees me, he says, and I declare you as holy through the blood of my son. Staggering. It's so important that when we get a gospel community and growth group that we're sharing our sin and we're seeking to put it to death and put on, it's so important. But it's also important that we speak the gospel over each other to remind each other in the midst of condemnation. Hey, listen, just want you to know though, even as you work hard on this sin, which you should before the Lord, you've been declared holy before him. He's forgiven you of it. It motivates you to want to change. And it also enables you to look to the heavens above and say, Lord, I thank you for what you've done. Would you help me become in reality what you've declared me to be? And then he says, and you are beloved. You're loved. Sovereign Grace, do you know that? Do you know that individually? That you are loved by God. What an intimate and beautiful reality that is, isn't it? To be loved by Him. The one who's supreme in creation. The one who was and is and is to come. The one who spins the galaxies. The ones that marks off the heavenly realms. The one who can take everything in creation and see that He knitted it all together and now sustains it in all its glory. And nonetheless says, and I love you. Specifically, in personally. You know, one of my greatest concerns sometimes as a pastor is the amount of people you meet at different times that actually are unaware of God's personal love for them. They see it for everybody else. They see that God loves them and they're on board with that. But they don't feel it for themselves. And instead, they actually feel that maybe in some way God is just tolerating them. And that is such a sad reality. You know, when I was at school, secondary school, I had to play rugby. I went to a grammar school, and so everybody played rugby in the winter. That's what you're allowed to do. Soccer was like, oh, that's for heathens. We play rugby here. And it was one of those types of schools. The problem was, I was built like a racing snake at that period of my time. I was tiny. You know, even when I showered, I had to put my arms out in case I didn't fell down the plug hole. I was a tiny specimen of a person. And so playing rugby was a horrible thought. Because they were all big. Some of my friends had beards. They were 12 years old. I did not have beard. I remember one kid once looking at the back of my legs and saying, have you even got muscles? It was that bad. You know, I was just a tiny guy. And so I remember one occasion, it was the middle of winter, there was snow on the ground, I remember that. And I remember being forced to play rugby. I don't know what position I was playing. I didn't understand anything like that. But they passed me the ball. I ran for my life. Like you've never known. I tucked it under my arm. I am running as fast as I can because I'm in fear of death. I'm running for my life. And I remember seeing the biggest kid in the year running towards me on the opposition and just thinking, I'm dead. This is the last thing I do. And just as I got close to him, I shut my eyes in terror. And then I had this very strange sensation 
of going backwards. And after a while, I opened my eyes to discover this wasn't just a sensation. This was a reality. This big kid had not only tackled me, he had picked me up and put me on his back, and he is running with me. I've still got the ball, and he's running backwards with me. It was so awkward. Eventually, he dumps me off him. They all dive on me. And all I can hear is everybody laughing. And you're 11 years old. And so eventually, I get up and... I don't think I have the ball anymore. I get up and all my friends are just looking at me and pointing and they're just laughing. And all I remember is seeing different friends' faces just going, oh, oh, oh. I was that kid you didn't want to pick to be on your team. I felt tolerated. And I think sometimes Christians feel like that. They hang around at church, but in some ways they never quite feel that they fit. They're the person on the team that God is he's letting in, but he's probably just tolerating. My friends, if you feel like that, given the amount of people here this morning, there may well be some. I want you to know for sure that God is not just tolerating you. Instead, he passionately and personally and particularly loves you. And here's how I know. I know it because before the foundation of the earth, He chose you by name. Knowing exactly who you'd be, knowing your strengths and your weaknesses, he called your name. And at the right time, he then sent forth his son. He sent forth his son so that you could be forgiven and be declared as holy and know that heaven is your home and be adopted into his very family. Adopted into the royal family and in his love for you, he did all you, even though it would be at the cost of Calvary. And he did it all for you. My friends, none of us should feel that God is tolerating us. That is the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches. Because what the Bible teaches is, no, he passionately and personally and particularly loves you. Don't let Satan rob you of that reality with those lies. Because the reality is he passionately and particularly and personally loves you. This is, as Paul wants us to see, who we are. God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. You are heirs with Jesus Christ, united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. You are now holy, declared to be royalty. Isn't that incredible? When you're walking around Coles this afternoon, just be aware of that. I am royalty. That's what I do whenever I go to the lolly aisle. I deserve these lollies because I am royalty. Be aware. This is who you are. And so Paul wants to help us see then in understanding who we are, the way we're meant to dress. And so he introduces us, point two, to our new clothes. What it is that we're meant to be putting on. What is in this royal wardrobe? What is in this wardrobe of the saints? And it gives us then five things, five pieces of clothing, five virtues in verses 12. Well, actually just in verse 12. This is what he says. He says, put on then as as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience. 
Paul now takes you and I by the hand and he wants to take us to a completely new wardrobe. The old clothes, they've got to go out of the chute, they've got to go because they're going to be burnt. But now we go to a royal wardrobe and he opens the doors for us and he wants to help us see, listen, you are here because God chose you, because you've been declared holy and because he loves you. And so these clothes, you haven't earned these clothes, he's earned these clothes for you, but this is what you now need to put on. It's beautiful. And he gives us five pieces of clothing to put on. The first piece of clothing is compassionate hearts. Now, if you still read the Bible in an old King James, you probably don't, but if you did, you would discover that what this actually says in the King James is bowels of mercy. You can see why we've moved on from the King James, because how can we put on bowels of mercy? But literally in the Greek, it really does mean stomach or bowels or indeed guts. That's why now in modern English, they translate it not so much as guts, but heart, compassionate hearts. But it's when you put all these things together, bowels and guts and hearts, that you get the idea of what he's really talking about. He's saying, listen, the core of who you really are, the seat of your emotions, your guts, that's what drives you forward in your life. Clothe that in compassion. Let that be the first piece of clothing you put on. Compassionate hearts for the Lord. You know, in the ancient world, apart from biblical revelation, they desperately needed this because the ancient world was merciless. I don't know if you like history or films, but one of my favorite films is Gladiator. And in Gladiator, you get to see how brutal it was to be alive at this time. It was brutal. They were not living in West Bennett Hills in Leafville. Negative. They are around swords, they are around hangings, they are around murders, they are around brutality. It was a merciless time and place to live. The maimed and sickly and aged were mostly discarded. The mentally ill were subjected to all sorts of inhumanities. And the opposed were often dealt with in brutal and barbaric ways. There were no equal rights. If you didn't like somebody, you killed them. It was barbaric. You're old, sickly, chuck them out, have nothing to do with them. You got leprosy, get out. Very different world. And it was actually Christ and his followers that historically speaking then brought in compassion. They changed the world. William Barclay puts it this way. He said, it is not too much to say that so much that has been done for the aged the sick, the weak in body and mind, the animal, the child, and the oppressed has been done under the inspiration of Christianity. And so it has. If you study history, where did the first hospitals come from? More often than not, Christians. Where did the schools come from? Christians. Where did the law system come from? Christians. Christianity brought in so many values to modern society and it was all founded ultimately on compassion and justice and righteousness, but compassion towards aged and towards people and towards animals and towards people so that they may be equal in value and worth and dignity before the Lord. And so Paul, right off the bat, says, listen, if you want to start dressing in like royalty, if you want to start dressing in accordance with who you've been declared to be, here's the first piece of clothing for you. Compassionate hearts. Be compassionate. Be compassionate like Christ was. Because that's what it looks like to dress like the king. He then takes us to the second piece of clothing, namely 
kindness. You know, kindness, I think, sometimes can be this thing in life that we just think, well, there's kind people and there's not kind people. It's just the way it is. And so if you live maybe in, like, you know, this area of Sydney, there's lots of kind people. Other places in the world, there's lots of not so kind people. Listen, it doesn't actually work like that. Kindness in our humanity is not something that actually just happens naturally at all, in most cases. That's why Paul exhorts us to put on then. It's not listed as one of the negative selves that we need to put off. He doesn't say, listen, yeah, you know, but come to think of it, you're really kind. No, this is something you need to put on. This is not part of the old self. It's something that we need to actually go to the wardrobe and put on and wrap around ourselves so that whoever it is that we meet in our lives, we can be kind to them. Whoever it is. Clothe yourself in kindness. Something that doesn't always come quite as naturally as we think. George Bernard Shaw, a man who was an Irish playwright, he once wrote the following letter to Winston Churchill. This is what he said. He says, Enclosed are two tickets to the opening night of my first play. Bring a friend, then in brackets, if you have one. It was a dig, it was a jibe. Bring a friend. Guess you don't have one. So Churchill replied in a usual mischievous way, one of the things I like about him. He says, Dear Mr. Shaw, Unfortunately, I'll be unable to attend the opening night of your play due to a prior engagement. Please send me tickets for a second night, in brackets, if you have one. You know, without doubt, I'd want you to understand that there is considerable playfulness in these words as these two men went at it together. And yet, sadly, our words and our deeds are not always quite so innocent, are they? Whether they be said in real life or emailed, or text, or on Facebook, or WhatsApp. It's not like God says, hey, listen, it's really important the way you use speech, but WhatsApp, don't worry about it. No, that's speech. And it is all too easy, is it not, when someone upsets us, or offends us, or doesn't quite come up to our high expectations of what we think they should be doing, or they should be. And suddenly then what comes out of our mouths is judgment, and gossip, and slander, and obscene talk. Maybe in our homes, maybe in our groups, maybe in our workplaces. But we've been called to something way more than that. In Ephesians 4.29, Paul says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. That's the calling that we all have in our lives when it comes to our use of speech. Our words must bring grace to the hearer. Our words must be seasoned with salt, Paul tells us later on in Colossians. Our words must be used to build people up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to them. Paul knows only too well, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. We can't help ourselves. So here's what he tells us. When you go to that wardrobe, then don't just get out compassion. Get out kindness as well. Because when you clothe yourself in kindness, it will radically affect the way you speak and what you do. That's the clothing of royalty. Not slander or gossip. Kindness. Kind speech. It then takes us to the third piece of clothing, 
namely humility. That virtue of considering others as more important than ourselves. That virtue of not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought, not thinking of ourselves as the centre of our universe, but instead, in the right sense, bowing our knee and considering others more important than ourselves, others' interests more important than ourselves, other needs more important than ours. Now, once again, when you study history and you study what these early hearers would have heard here, this would be one of these drop mic moments where you're just like, did he just say humility? Because that was not the virtue of the day that would be like classed as a good thing. No one wanted to be humble. That was a really weird thing to want to be. The general idea of the day, the general virtue of the day, the character qualities that you would want were ostentation, achievement, and position. That's what, that was the trade of the day. It was about how big my house is, what I own, what I have. This, this shows my status, as does my achievements. So I want to talk about my achievements. I want to talk about what I can do, what I've achieved, what grades I got, what job I now do. Why? Because it affects my position. My position in my family, my position at the table, my position in my community, my position in society. The stock and trade of the day was not to lowly give yourself to other people. It was to look after number one and then talk about how good you are and what you need to do and what you've achieved. And as I was studying that this week, I realized I'm not sure much has changed in 2,000 years because the stock and trade, the way people talk in Sydney as well, is to do with ostentation and position and achievement. And yet, What Paul is talking about here is humility. The reason why it wasn't a valued virtue at the time is because humility was a word that you would work in line with servants and slaves. Servants and slaves were humble. Thanks very much. But we're not one of them. Thanks very much. We've moved on up. This is the reason why Jesus had so much trouble with his disciples on numerous cases. But in particular in Mark chapter 10. See, Mark chapter 10, as you remember the scene, Jesus has just told them on at least two other occasions that he's going to die. That he's going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to give his life away. He's going to be whipped, he's going to be beaten, and he's going to die on a cross. The disciples, in here, one ear, out the other. They ain't got a clue what's going on. And so they say, oh, thanks for that. Anyway, when you get to Jerusalem, here's what we're thinking. This is James and John talking. Here's what we're thinking. When you get there, would you mind, could James sit at your right and can I sit at your left? It's one of those cringeworthy moments that you're like, have you not heard a word he said for the last three years? He's telling you he's going to die. They hadn't heard it at all because as far as they're concerned, this is the Messiah. And so when we get to Jerusalem, he will overthrow Rome. He'll take his kingship again. And so sweet, when he takes his kingship, I want to sit at his right and I want to sit at his left. Why? Because that's a position of achievement. It's a position that people will look at me. They'll value me. So I want to sit at your right and I want to sit at your left. Is that okay? It says in one of the other Gospels that James's John mum was there as well. She had a few words to share with the Saviour as well. Listen, yes, they're very good boys. Very good boys. If you could, they're really good. They keep you warm and everything, right and left. It'd be lovely. It says at that point in the Gospel of Mark that the other disciples are indignant. And you think, praise God, finally somebody's got it. But then you discover they haven't got it at all. 
They're indignant because they want to sit at his right and his left. So they start arguing and fighting because it's like, well, I want the position. I want the achievement. I want to have that place. And Jesus pulls them to one side and he uses this as a delightful teaching opportunity for them. And this is what he says in Mark chapter 10, verses 42 to 45. It says, And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That incredible? Jesus turns this whole paradigm of true greatness right on its head. He says, guys, you think that true greatness is ostentation and achievement and position. You think that's what life is all about. But that's not true greatness at all. True greatness is humility. True greatness is serving others. True greatness is considering others more important than yourself. And no one modeled that better than Jesus Christ, did they? You see him all the way through the Gospels giving his life away to others. Early in the morning, late at night, whoever it be, he's serving people. The night before he died, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who breathed out the stars, the one who created the world, wraps a towel around his waist and then gets down on his knees to wash the disciples' feet. It's staggering. That was the lowest of the low jobs. You were the bottom of the rung of the slave to be washing feet. But Jesus gets on his hands and knees, and that's what he does. He even washed the feet of Judas because he was a servant. And he wanted to help these guys see, listen, the way of royalty, the way of kingship isn't about ostentation or position or achievement. The way of royalty is service. Considering others more important than yourself. Isn't it a beautiful piece of clothing? A staggering turn on its head what we think of as true greatness. But true greatness is being the servant of all, the slave of all being willing to get on our hands and knees, whatever it takes, to wash each other's feet and to help. It's not about position. It's about humility. He then takes another piece of clothing, the fourth piece of clothing, out the wardrobe for us to try on. And it is the clothing of meekness. You know, this is one of those things that I don't think I've ever heard in growth group in my life. Somebody say, what do you want to put on? Well, I've been praying about it. I just want to put on meekness. No, never. I've never heard that in my life. Because so often we think of meekness as weakness. We just think they've got the M the wrong way around. You know, it's like, I think he means weakness. I don't want to want that. Meekness is not weakness at all. In actual fact, meekness is strength and passion under control. That's what meekness actually is. To be meek is to be a person of strength and passion, but to have it under control It's one of the things that I absolutely love about C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. Because all the way through, particularly as you watch the movies, Aslan is portrayed as this great lion. 
And as you watch it on the movies, you realize this great lion, Aslan, which is obviously Christ in, in the message, he's always under control. But he is this great lion. You're aware with a roar, you could wipe people out here. With an arm or a paw, you could cut people to shreds. With a bite, you could kill people in a moment. But you always see this great lion of stature and passion and strength under control. Using self-control. That is meekness. It's an individual who knows what they're about, knows what they stand for, knows what they're passionate about, but has it under control. So always presents gentle, clear, gracious. Not because they're weak, but because they're meek. And then he takes us to this final piece of clothing, namely patience. He doesn't mean just general patience. In this context, what he means is long-suffering endurance in the face of insult or injury. It's how we respond when somebody insults us or injures us. And he tells us this, and the way royalty responds is with long-suffering endurance. Paul is not here saying then, just to be very clear, that that means when you've been on the end of an injury or an insult, that, well, you know, just turn the other cheek, don't do anything with it. You know, that's not what he's saying. There's a time to go to somebody in love and challenge them. I ask them a question. Hey, when you said that, this is what I heard. Is that what you meant? There's a time to do that. But what he is saying very clearly here is, listen, when you are on the end of an insult or when you are at the end of an injury, your response should always be fragrance with gentleness and long-suffering and patience. Because isn't that the way God treats you? When you sin before the Lord, does he jump down your throat immediately? Does he tell you, but I've already told you twice! No. He responds with long-suffering, endurance, and patience. And Paul wants us to know that's the way we now need to respond in royalty as well. You know, what we have here before us then really is a pretty impressive wardrobe, is it not? This is the wardrobe of the saints. This is the wardrobe of royalty. This is the wardrobe of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and it's filled with clothes that he wants us to put on. He wants us to take these clothes out and dress ourselves in them because these are the clothes that are becoming of who we've been declared to be. And then in verse 13, he just very quickly illustrates for us what the fruits of wearing these clothes will be. He gives us two realities that if you wear these clothes, this will happen. Verse 13, he says, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. They're not actually, within context, two more pieces of clothing he wants us to put on. They're actually the fruits of wearing this clothing. So what he's telling us is, listen, if you clothe yourself with compassionate hearts and kindness and humility and meekness and patience, guess what? You will bear with one another in a completely different way. And you will forgive each other very differently than you did before. Because in humility you'll realize, hey, listen, I I feel wronged by you. I've struggled with what you've done. But the truth is, I offend the Lord far more than you've ever offended me. It affects the way we speak. It affects the way we act. It affects our disposition. 
When we clothe ourselves with these royal clothes, it affects all our words and all our deeds. And then there's one final piece of clothing that Paul wants to get out for us. As he reaches to the ground and he gets out a crown. One more thing that he wants you to put on. And that's my third point, our new crown. And look with me at verse 14. He says, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. The crowning glory then of the wardrobe, the crowning glory of your life, the crowning glory of everything else that you've put on, the thing that is above everything else, the thing that binds it all together, that ties this entire outfit together as royalty, is a crown. And it is a crown of love. And when you examine what love is, it all begins to make sense of why it's so important. Why it ties this whole outfit together. See, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses that are most often read at weddings, he tells us what love is. Just listen, this is what our crown is that we need to put on. He says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Isn't that beautiful? As he shows us around this crown, he wants to help us see, listen, this is the crown and glory of your life. This is what it means to dress now in like royalty. Crown your life with love. Love that is patient and kind. Love that doesn't envy or boast. It isn't arrogant or rude. Love that doesn't insist on my own way. That isn't irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with the truth. Listen, this crown, it bears with all things. It believes the best about all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. And it never ends. So he tells us, above all then, put on love. It's that which binds it all together. My friends, what we have here before us really is a pretty impressive wardrobe, is it not? It's the wardrobe of the king. The wardrobe of royalty, the wardrobe of saints. And it is filled with clothes that God, by his grace, wants us to put on. And so, my friends, I want to encourage you then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, as people who have been declared in Christ to be royalty, you are a son and daughter of the king. You are an heir with Christ. You are royalty. Go to that new wardrobe then and put on these new clothes. It is these clothes that are befitting of the position you now have in Christ. Those old clothes, they got to go. These are the clothes of the new kingdom that you're a part of. And my friends, here's our hope in all of this. In Philippians 2 verse 13 
A line that can often so easily be overlooked. Paul says this. He says, for it is God who works in you. God who works in you. Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. My friends, even in this task of putting off and putting on, we are not alone. The Spirit of Christ, the one who wore these clothes better than anybody, now lives in us, not just to change us from the outside, but to change us from within, to empower us and strengthen us and aid us in this change. So strengthened and encouraged by that reality, may we put off and may we put on the clothing of the King. Let's pray. Lord, it is a staggering reality that we are anywhere near this wardrobe at all. It's a staggering reality that we are not far from you and cut off from you in our sin. And yet we're not. In grace and mercy, you've saved us. In grace and mercy, you forgave us. In grace and mercy, you chose us and declared us now holy. And we're loved by you. So Lord, I I pray, would you help us then, Lord, to have you and you alone as our vision. Would you help us to fix our gaze afresh this morning just on you. And help us to go to that new wardrobe. And help us to put on these new clothes. Lord, we want to be like you. And you tell us in these verses how to become like you. So would we go about this most sacred and holy task? Not just today, but every day for the rest of our lives. And would we then walk in a manner worthy of you, pleasing to you, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.